What's up, my podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and I have a special compilation-style episode where I compiled all my one-minute videos that I posted this past year on Instagram on various topics, such as squat mechanics or getting stuck at the bottom of your squat, mobility training, low back pain, and more. So without further ado, here we go. Yesterday, I got a question online about getting stuck or almost feeling weak in the bottom of a barbell back squat. And when I hear these kind of comments from people uh, online, automatically I think about they probably don't have enough you know, core stability. And usually when I work with somebody in person and they back squat, the first thing I ask them is what is your bracing strategy? And they look at me like I have, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And that already gives me an indication that this person doesn't know how to effectively brace for something like the back squat. So I highly suggest that you look into how to properly brace from any great power lifter out there. And hopefully that helps. Let's talk about bracing. This is going to go off of my last video on core stability and building a proper brace in the back squat. A lot of times with bracing, people just assume that you just turn on your core and stiffen up and everything's gonna work. But when you look at how our diaphragm is designed, it's not only supposed to push out forward when you take a deep inhale, it's also supposed to push out kind of like a cylinder all around your spine to give you that stability. So every time I do a warm up with clients or even work out myself, my first exercise is breathing, specifically belly breathing, focusing on filling up my torso with a breath to kind of prep my body for my workout. So to go off of my last two videos about bracing and breathing and core stability, we also need to talk about tension or irradiation, um, which is a concept of if I can recruit more things in my body to brace for a lift, then I'm probably going to have an easier time to perform the exercise. So an example of this, if I told you to lift the 100-pound dumbbell in your gym, would you be loosey-goosey or would you be like, holy shit, this is going to be heavy, I need to make sure that everything is tight. So if you were back squatting, not only are you thinking of creating that belly breath, but you also want to think of driving your hands into the barbell as hard as possible, pulling it down, corkscrewing the feet, and any other thing you can think of to create tension in your body to make the lift a little bit easier. How do I program plyometric training part three? I kind of talked about less is more. And a lot of times when I explain that our tendons and ligaments and all those connective tissues can only take so much. So we have to slowly build up that low capacity just like this. If I program 10 sets of box jumps and people's Achilles tendons are flared up, it's gonna take that much longer for them to recover and come back to the gym. Whereas if I just have just enough for the body to respond, then they're gonna get more benefit long-term, more days in the gym, more success in an entire year. And also from a business standpoint, if I have people coming into my gym on a daily, weekly basis throughout the whole year, 
then I'm kind of in a better position than most people where their people are injured and not at the gym. How do I program plyometrics part two? Less is more when it comes to plyometric work and you can utilize the same analogy for all of our training. If you really think about it, you can boil water at 100 degrees and you can also boil it at 300. Both get to that end goal, but maybe one is more efficient. When I deal with general population people, I'm not trying to kick them every time they come to the gym. I'm trying to give them just the amount, just the right amount of volume for their body to respond. By doing six sets, seven sets, 10 sets, maybe that's not the best thing for that individual. I don't want them to be sore for five days after their workout. Less is more, especially when it comes to plyometric training. A recent question I got online is how do I program plyometric work into my clients' programs? And plyometrics is really interesting, and I think a lot of people get this wrong. They do way too much. If you think about the amount of foot contacts from jumping, doing depth jumps, you name it, that's a lot on our tendons and tissues. And most general population people that we all work with don't have that resiliency to do that much volume. So typically what I do with anyone, I kind of look at between 30 to 60 foot contacts per week. So if I'm doing box jumps, four sets of five on Monday, I'm already diving into that 30 to 60. So now people start realizing that it's a lot shorter and a lot smaller in their plyometric section of their program. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out. How to start mobility training part two. So part one was to start with movement. Step two is actually doing it every single day. I always make the joke that you should be doing cars or controlled articular rotations a hundred times a day. I have yet to meet somebody I've worked with or known that has overdone mobility with cars. I would love for one person out there to reach out to me like, hey, I got super sore from doing cars and everything hurts now. So really try to fit it in anywhere. Try to do your neck all the way down to your toes daily. I posted a video a couple days ago where I do my cars while waiting for my coffee in the morning. Something simple as that. Do it while you're brushing your teeth. Do it as your warm up. Do it as your cool down. I don't care, just fit it in. How to start mobility training part two. So part one was to start with movement. Step two is actually doing it every single day. I always make the joke that you should be doing cars or controlled articular rotations a hundred times a day. I have yet to meet somebody I've worked with or have known that has overdone mobility with cars. I would love for one person out there to reach out to me like, hey, I got super sore from doing cars and everything hurts now. <laughs> so really try to fit it in anywhere. Try to do your neck all the way down to your toes daily. I posted a video a couple days ago where I do my cars while waiting for my coffee in the morning. Something simple as that. Do it while you're brushing your teeth. Do it as your warm up. Do it as your cool down. I don't care, just fit it in. How do I improve my mobility? Part three. So in part three, you probably are at a point where you're moving daily. Things are moving better. And now you're like, well, I wanna challenge that. So this gets into things like pails and rails, 
hovers, active range liftoffs that are all within the Kinstretch system. If you wanna learn more about Kinstretch and what it can do for you, I've posted so many videos, so many posts about it, just look back. But essentially what it's doing, it's strength training for your connective tissue, which is responsible for every single exercise that you do. If the connective tissue in my shoulder is not functioning at a high level, there's no chance in hell that I'm gonna be able to press things overhead effectively. I'm gonna hit a plateau if this deep stuff doesn't work. So part three is getting into kin stretch. One common question I get online a lot is, should I get an MRI for my low back pain? And that is a huge and loaded question. So I almost have to flip it and ask another question. Are you currently working with a chiro, physio, doctor, or some sort of medical professional? A lot of times when people ask me this question, they're not, and they're trying to almost self-diagnose what's going on with them. And as much as the internet is helpful to give you information, you're probably not in a position to self-diagnose what's going on. And that's why I always refer out to a medical professional that has a lot more experience with MRI imaging and how to interpret the results. So maybe your step one is to go see someone who can actually determine whether or not you need an MRI for your low back pain. Why does my lower back hurt when I deadlift part one? So this is a loaded question that I get a lot and I need a lot of information first. And I would usually go down the route of let's go through your medical history first. And a lot of the times when I ask this question, I get, I've had previous low back pain, I've been dealing with low back pain for the last year, three years, 10 years. And then from there, it's like, okay, have you had any surgeries? Have you had any other injuries? Because all of those things will relate to why your lower back hurts when you're deadlifting. So first step is to figure out your history of injuries and if you've had any low back pain prior to you deadlifting and then seeking out a medical professional like a chirophysio or some sort of person that deals with low back pain before you start training with a trainer. Why does my lower back hurt while deadlifting part two? So in part two, let's say it's a mobility restriction. And usually when people deadlift, they actually shouldn't be deadlifting off the floor in the first place. And there's no rule that you have to deadlift off the floor. I don't know why everybody thinks that they have to. If the goal is to get strong and get better looking glutes and better looking hamstrings, then you don't have to do it off the floor. Something as simple as elevating your barbell two inches to 10 inches off the ground or even doing rack pulls could actually fix the low back pain issue while deadlifting just by elevating it. Why does my lower back hurt while I deadlift part three? Continuing on the mobility route, a lot of times, a lot of people don't have enough hip mobility. So something as simple as focusing on hip mobility and personally, I always tack hip internal rotation because that gives you a little bit more room for your hips to move through if you're going off the floor while deadlifting. So part three, work on hip internal rotation, something as simple as doing pails and rails 
every single day and even part of your warm-up will give you a little bit more room to get more depth down to the ground so you're actually pulling through your hips and not extending through your lower back. Why does my lower back hurt while deadlifting part four? One common thing that a lot of people will say or mention to me is that their hamstrings are super tight and they can't touch their toes and they have low back pain as well. A lot of times when people are deadlifting, they have that natural tightness in their hamstrings and a lot of times that's due to our nervous system protecting us from something. Anytime there's something tight in our body, it's on purpose. And a lot of times people just attack that tight spot, but maybe there might be something else that's causing that tightness for your body to react that way. So that's where you have to almost play detective and then that takes us to back to part one where you need to go see that medical professional like a chiro or physio to figure out why your body's reacting in that way hopefully this helps if you have any questions feel free to reach out why does my lower back hurt while i deadlift part five we're going to continue on the mobility route and we're gonna look at hip mobility more specifically. A lot of times when I do an assessment, I will see that one hip has more mobility than the other side. Meaning, if you were doing a bilateral squat or deadlift, your body's naturally gonna go to the side where it has more range of motion because it's least path of resistance. So now when you think about it, if your body favors one side because it has more room to go that way, you're going to have an imbalance, and I'm using air quotes because I hate that word, towards the side where you have more range and then over time you're overloading that side. And a lot of times with people with low back pain or hip pain, you'll be on the side where they have the most mobility if they're deadlifting and squatting. Hopefully this helps. One question I get online all the time is, I have pain while running. And my next question becomes, what hurts? And usually it's followed by my feet, my ankles, my knees, my shins, my hips, my low back. Maybe running is not the right choice for you at this moment in time. A lot of people forget that running is a high impact activity. If I told you to jump on one leg 1,500 times and then switch over to the other side, you'd say I'm crazy. That's one mile of running, same motion. So when people start running, they usually do too much, too fast, and they actually need some time to progress to that distance that they're aiming for. So the next time you go run, don't go run for 30 minutes or an hour. It might just be like six minutes just to build up that capacity. One of the most common things that I see when people start running is that they get foot pain. And there's a lot that goes into this answer. And quite simply, it could just be the way that your feet are structured. Sometimes people have collapsed arches, flat feet, a really high arch, and that's gonna play a crucial role on how your foot impacts the ground and pushes off. So the first kind of step is to figure out what your feet are doing and what exercises or what strategies you're gonna need to relieve that pain when you start running.